Well, this morning we are dealing with the entirety of uh, chapter 3 in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And what we have in this chapter is a prayer interrupted. Paul begins in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and right when he was about to report that he prays for the Ephesians, he gets distracted. And he launches into an aside that runs from verse 2 to verse 13. And finally, in verse 14, his rabbit trail comes to an end. And he returns to the sentence that he left unfinished in the first verse. And to, to make this, this connection explicit, he even begins verse 14 the same way he did verse 1. For this reason, he repeats, he's picking up his train of thought. I bow my knees before the Father. Paul is praying once again, just as he did at the end of chapter 1. He only got through one chapter before he returned to pray again. A fact that further highlights Paul's experience of, of desperation on behalf of the Ephesians. His hope that they will prove faithful in Christ is so strong that he continues to be overwhelmed by the urge to pray. And Paul's only recourse is prayer. It's only recourse for any of us. But Paul's prayer is interrupted before it really even begins. His mention that he is a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles in verse 1 sends his mind scattered as it is by his concern for the Ephesians down a rabbit trail. And we're going to follow him down this trail before returning to the content of his prayer in the latter half of the chapter. And what we will find down this trail is that Paul's not necessarily relaying new content in this tangent. For 11 verses, Paul just kind of recaps the content of chapter 2, which is that the Gentiles who once were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise have, through Christ, become fellow heirs with the Jewish people, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This was a change that no one saw coming, especially not Paul. In verse 5, he calls it a mystery that was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. God has opened up salvation to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. God was interacting with humanity in an entirely new way. This was a change worthy of repetition. This was a change worthy of a rabbit, rabbit trail. And in these 11 verses, as I said, Paul isn't providing new content. Instead, he's, he's taking the old content and he's reframing it in order to give it new life and new energy. He takes this grand mystery of salvation and he sets it in an even grander context. See, Paul's trying to inspire the Ephesians with a vision of what God is doing in them because they were losing heart, as Paul acknowledged in verse 13. They were feeling defeated. And perhaps wondering why they were stubbornly clinging to Christ if doing so was costly to them and making their lives difficult, miserable even. The motivation to cling to Christ even when it requires self-sacrifice and even when it means being considered a, a, an ignorant pariah by a culture opposed to Christianity. The motivation to cling to Christ comes, Paul says, 
when you consider that God has set your life within a cosmic context, with cosmic implications for your actions here on earth. It becomes necessary to widen the frame of vision when Christians seem to lack influence in their surrounding world. There can be a number of reasons for this loss of influence. It could be that the cultures become antagonistic or apathetic to Christianity, as was probably the case for the Ephesian Christians. It is not taken seriously and therefore easily ignored, and Christians can shout all they want, but they're only yelling into the wind. Or it could be that a, a Christian finds herself in a season of life where circumstances have left her limited and isolated, as is often the experience of the elderly in nursing homes or the sick in hospitals or at home. Or I might suggest it could be the experience of a church that is trying to figure out how in the world we can live and love our neighbors and each other when a pandemic has forced us to maintain six feet distance and minimize our community exposure. In each of these scenarios where Christians feel a loss of, of influence, a loss of contact with the world, questions of purpose naturally arise. What good is my faith when my life lacks purpose, when no one takes me seriously, or I can only lie in bed and wait for people to come and visit me, or I don't want to leave my house because my, my family, or I might get sick. What motivation is there to live a Christian life of discipline, sacrifice, and prayer when your relationships disappear, when your contact with the outside world is minimized? And that question finds an answer in verse 10, where Paul says this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made, being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. You didn't expect Paul to say that. Paul widens the frame of vision significantly with that unexpected audience. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are watching. This means that even when you have no contact with the outside world or the outside world utterly disregards you, even if you can have contact with them, still you have an audience who is watching your life. And through you, Paul says, they learn of God. Now, John Calvin often talks about the world as a theater, a theater in which God performs and we are the audience. Through observation of the world, we can learn of God. This was the content of the children's sermon not too long ago. And Paul points out in Romans 1 that this isn't exhaustive knowledge, but we can learn about God's attributes and, and presence by observing the world around us. And our Old Testament reading for this morning reinforces this view of the world. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist writes, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Well, Paul here in Ephesians 3.10 is also talking about the world as a theater. Only in Paul's theater, we're the ones on stage. And the audience is the angels and the saints, the demons even. The rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm. And God is the director and playwright. He guides us through our lives as we live out the diverse stories of redemption that he has written for us in Jesus Christ. And the angels and the demons learn about God as they watch Christians live lives of faith in the absence of earthly motivations. 
You see, not even they have an exhaustive knowledge, though they do not bear our same human limitations. The depths of God's character and person are so deep that they are always discovering him afresh. And in the case of the angels and saints rejoicing over him. The angels and saints, even the demons, learn about his wisdom and power as they watch the ways in which he orders our lives to produce beauty and virtue through the experiences of suffering. He creates echoes of resurrection in our daily experience. And the angels and saints marvel at his masterful redemption of terrible situations. The angels and saints, even the demons, learn about God's mercy, grace, and love as he redeems sinners and confers dignity upon, the, upon them by employing them, as he did with Paul. In verse 8, Paul calls himself the least of all the saints. Remember, this was a man who literally hunted Christians in the first century. He sought out legal power to have people executed should they refuse to deny their faith in Jesus Christ. He was the least of all the saints. And yet, this was the man whom God chose to have mercy upon and employ in the work of bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. This is a storyline that does not result in awe at Paul, Paul, but awe at the gracious character of God. He's gracious beyond our ability to fathom his grace. And as they watch this storyline unfold over and over again in the lives of Christians all over the world, the demons grumble at these kindnesses, but the angels marvel. And our lives, even when lived in forced isolation, result in an increase of God's glory in the heavenly places. And the particular grace of this participation in God's glory is that our participation is not merely passive. We're not merely the recipients of God's grace, but our participation is also active. We can respond to God's grace and actively increase his glory in the heavenly places. The entire premise of Satan is that we don't really love God for God's sake alone. So he truly believes this. We don't love God for God's sake alone. We love God because he gives us things. This is the very thing that Satan says of Job. Take everything Job has and he'll curse you. He doesn't love you. He loves you because you've given him things. He thinks our love is merely transactional. It's something God has purchased from us. Which means there's actually no greater opportunity than when we are living in forced isolation to prove the genuineness of our love, to prove Satan wrong and delight the angels and saints. There's no greater opportunity than when we are experiencing emptiness than to prove that God fills us and is enough for us. Job made the most of his opportunity when he asked his wife, shall we accept good from God and not evil? What a staggering act of submission and faith that both silenced the devil and left the angels in awe. And we now have that opportunity while we are in the midst of a pandemic and our country seems to be coming apart at the seams, while we are experiencing loss or the imminent threat of loss, to do those things that are equally as staggering, to prove the genuineness of our love to silence the devil and to send the angels and saints into rejoicing over God. 
And none of those things that we can do are, are staggering on their own. In fact, they're quite mundane, and you've heard them hundreds of times. But it's the circumstances in which they are practiced that make them staggering. To do these things now is scandalous. We can pray. In the isolating silence of our homes, we can speak as if someone is actually there. What an act of faith. We can recite the Apostles' Creed every day, pressing back our doubts and the darkness with a declaration of what we believe, that God is actually victorious over all of this. We can read Scripture daily, and while we are at it, we can commit some of it to memory. We can fast. We can bless God for resurrection in the morning and for his faithfulness at night. We can cultivate joy by praising God for the food that's on our table, the roof over our heads, the the bird singing outside of our window, the many shades of green that God has created in our world. We can cultivate wonder and joy. We can call each other on the phone. We can write each other a card. We can sing hymns and songs to each other. We can listen. We can commit to attending church still whether in person or online. We can continue to give our money away despite the volatility of markets. We can bake each other bread. We can grocery shop for those who are at higher risk. None of these things are extreme. None of them. But the Christian life does not consist in extreme action, but rather faithfulness in the the mundane regardless of the circumstance. When the circumstances of of life are threatening and isolating, the mundane things actually become radical. Mundane things take on new life. Mundane things faithfully done cause praises to echo through the heavens. That's what Paul is saying. But Paul knows that external motivations fade. And even the glorious thought that the angels and saints learn of God through us, can be muted by the anxieties of this world, through the ongoing grind of a pandemic, through the projections that this will last for many months. And so Paul remembers his prayer. He remembers why he was going to pray. Because what will support a life of faithfulness is not external motivations. What will support a life of faithfulness is knowledge of the unknowable. Knowledge of the love of God. Paul calls the love of God unknowable in verse 19, not because it's foreign or strange, but because it's beyond our ability to comprehend its fullness. You really have no idea how much God loves you and what he does for you on a daily basis because of that love. You have no idea. The only comparison I can think of is the relationship between parents and their children. Children have no idea, not the slightest clue, what their parents do to provide for them. They go to sleep at night when there's a pile of dishes in the sink. Toys are still on the floor. Dirty laundry is unsorted and on the laundry room floor. Bills are unpaid. The toilet is clogged. Shoes are scattered all over the house. The dining room and kitchen are a mouse buffet. And when they wake up, the dishes are clean. 
The toys back in their basket. Their clothes are clean and folded. The crumbs have been swept up. The bills have been paid. The toilet flushes again. Shoes have been reunited with their match. And breakfast is waiting for them on the table. They have no idea how much their parents love them and work to provide for for them. And our relationship with God is the same way, but only on a cosmic level. We go to sleep at night and don't think twice about whether we'll wake up in the morning. And we usually do wake up. But it's only because in the night, God commanded our lungs to pull air 7,000 times. And 21,000 times he told our heart to beat. We really have no idea the extent of his love for us. We haven't the slightest clue about the innumerable ways in which God has spared us from some tragedy or prevented some evil thing from happening to us. We don't know because he intervened and we'll probably never know. And neither do we see or acknowledge every good thing that God has done for us. It's more than we can even imagine. But Paul wants you to at least know that you don't know. Because in that admission is where the wonder begins. You have no idea how much God loves you. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and for you is that the Holy Spirit would work deep within you, in your inner being, he says in verse 16, so that through faith in Jesus Christ, he might take up residence in your hearts and his love for you demonstrated on the cross would be the starting point in your pursuit of God. And beginning with this love of Jesus Christ, Paul prays that your understanding of God's love would only grow from there. That our weak and feeble minds would be strengthened by the Spirit to comprehend what Paul calls the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. To know what is ultimately unknowable. Because if you can even get a glimpse into the extent of his love for you, then you will be filled to the brim with contentment and peace and satisfaction and boldness in this world. You will neither need nor want anything else, which is exactly where we need to be when all around us, everything seems to be uncertain and falling apart. He fills us with his love so that we can experience emptiness and still praise him which in turn causes the angels and saints to praise him. Together with the angels and saints, we glorify God with one voice. The air becomes thick with his praise. This is heaven and earth coming together to fulfill the purpose for which God created the heavens and the earth in the first place, to glorify him. He created a theater to display his glory. And when we praise him despite our circumstances, when we remain committed to the mundane disciplines of Christianity, when it would be easier to drift away from Christ and his church, then we are fulfilling the purpose for which which he created us. Then we are really living. And then we will be truly happy in this world and in his love. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.